So today, as we record this, it is January 20th, 2022. That is correct. Does that date, you know, does January 20th mean anything to you? I feel like it should. And I feel like you're going to tell me and it's going to ring a bell that is not ringing currently in my head. All right. Well, there's two weirdly related reasons why January 20th is meaningful. The first is that it's generally when presidents get inaugurated, other than when it's uh, you know a weekend or a holiday or something like that. But the other one is that as we record this, it is the 21st anniversary of the first ever podcast. Oh, wow. And in fact, that was not a coincidence is that it was because the guy decided he wanted to launch the first ever podcast feed the day of the inauguration because he kind of wanted to to slip it under the radar. Huh. Uh, but there's actually a guy uh, named Dave Weiner, I think, who was largely responsible for inventing RSS feeds. And he was approached by Adam Curry, former uh, MTV VJ, Adam Curry. And Adam Curry had like all these like stories that he wanted to tell. And he said, you know what, though, people don't want to go to my blog and click play and just have it be there forever. What might be cool is if they could go to an RSS feed, download it, and then come back to it later. So they're working, they've got it on there. So again, Dave Weiner, the guy who did RSS feeds, fooled around with it, tested it out, came up with an audio uh, way of doing it. So he launched an audio RSS feed. And again, to get it, to sort of slip it under the radar, he launched it the day that the uh, that George W. Bush was inaugurated. So it was January 20th, 2001. Some fun trivia, and this is why it actually popped up in my Twitter feed. Do you know what the first podcast was? It would probably have been, oh, would it have been This American Life? Well, see, if Dave Weiner was smart and thinking like you, that's probably what he would have put on his podcast feed. But instead, Dave Weiner thinks like me. So what he put on his podcast feed for the first 10 days was the studio recording of U.S. Blues by the Grateful Dead. Ah. So the first 10 podcasts ever are U.S. Blues by the Grateful Dead. Ah. <laughs> All right. Why don't we do our own? We don't have to talk about the dead. Okay. That's what we'll call this episode. We don't have to talk about the dead. <laughs> the Veterans Committee episode for Hall of Songs, 1971 to 74, lifting off right about now. Welcome, music lovers and loyal listeners, to Hall of Songs, the podcast in which two men attempt to determine the greatest songs of all time. I am Tim Malcolm. I am Chris Jones. And we're also calling this We Don't Have to Talk About the Dead. <laughs> Chris, how are we doing today? Oh, oh, pretty good. It's cold in Philadelphia. It's cold here in Houston. It's about 40 degrees, which is cold for Houston. Just, I think people know that by now, that if you're down south in Texas, 40 degrees is considered cold. What is the temperature there in Philadelphia? Oh, it's in like the low 20s. It was, it got colder than, uh, colder than what, it, what I thought it was going to be. I did not take my gloves today and it was a, a big mistake. But is it a crisp cold? Not today. Today it is like a damp, actual cold. Oh, that's what it usually is when it gets cold here in Houston. It's damp and humid because we live in a tropical climate here. And I am convinced that 
it can be 30 degrees warmer than Philadelphia in Houston, but it will feel colder in Houston. Yeah, I got you. It's so weird how that those external factors, uh, you know, do that. Like living in London, where it was this sort of you were constantly damp, where like you'd look up and it'd say it was like, you know, about 41 Fahrenheit and it was still just frigid because you were chilled to the bone from the moisture. Yeah, I, I don't I would love to live in London, but I don't know if I could do a rainy almost all the time climate. That feels it's very actually, that's I think it's kind of like Seattle where they make that up to keep people away. Oh. Novembers in London are absolutely miserable, but the other eleven months it's a pretty livable place. Okay, that's good to know. Maybe I will go to London one of these summers once my kids are at an age where they can stay home or something. I don't know. <laughs> This is our Veterans Committee episode, as we said off the top. This is an episode where Chris and I here are going to discuss songs that we did not originally nominate for the Hall of Songs, and we're going to put some of them on the ballot for the Hall of Songs. So to recap, so you can get up to speed on what we do here on this podcast and where we're at, Chris and I started this podcast actually about a year ago. We're going to celebrate our one-year anniversary very soon here. And we start with 1951. We go year by year through the history of Western music, American, British. And with each episode, we're in a different year. And we go through what we believe are the best songs of that year. So we nominate up to 12 songs for our Hall of Songs, which is a Hall of Fame for songs. So each episode is up to 12 songs. We talk about them. It's fun. And then we put a ballot on our website, hallofsongs.com. That's where you come in, listener. After listening to the episode, you go to our website, hallofsongs.com, and vote for up to 10 songs that you think are among the absolute greatest of all time. It's a way to reframe the conversation on what the greatest songs of all time are. There are tons of lists out there all the time that say, this is these are the greatest songs of all time, the top 100. And it turns out that it's the same 100 songs almost every time, right? So we're trying to reframe the narrative and say, maybe these are the greatest songs of all time. Are we right? Yes, of course we're right. That's why we're doing this. <laughs> but go to hallofsongs.com and vote. And then at the end of our voting period, which is usually about a week, we then do a recap episode where we tell you the results of that ballot. We induct any songs into the Hall of Songs, if any got in. And then we come back a couple of days later with the next episode in our timeline. So our latest episode was in 1974, and we nominated 12 songs for the Hall of Songs. Among those songs, we had Steely Dan, Ricky Don't Lose That Number was in there. September Girls by Big Star was in there. We also had Autobahn by Croftwork. We had Stevie Wonder's You Haven't Done Nothing. Chris is smiling and laughing because of the way I say Autobahn by Croftwork. I know that's why <laughs> well, I'm actually, I was laughing about it. Well, I mean, also just the absurdity of that song, as delightful as it is. I, you know, I, everything about Croftwork is just, you know, makes me laugh. So we uh, nominated all those songs and put them on the ballot. The ballot is at hallofsongs.com. By the time this episode comes out, which will be on January 23rd, it might be too late for you to vote. We will go until the end of that Sunday, the 23rd, to let you vote. So you can do that, but you won't have much time left. But at the end of that period, we'll then come back with our 1975 episode. And before that, a few days before that, we'll have our recap episode that will give you the results from the latest round of voting. And that'll be our 20th election. And I believe that episode will drop on the 28th of January. So keep a lookout for that. Uh, recent songs that have been inducted into the hall of songs. What is the most recent? Is it, is it Al Green? I think it's Al Green, right? It is Al Green with let's stay together. Yeah. 
So that was from our 18th election. That was the one song that got in. And then in the last election, turns out that no songs got in. There is different, you know, thresholds that songs have to hit. So two-thirds support, a song will get into the Hall of Songs, at least two-thirds support. If a song gets under two-thirds support, it either stays on the ballot or it's get kicked off completely. A song gets kicked off the ballot if it doesn't achieve 35% support or if it's been on the ballot for 10 consecutive elections and never gets into the Hall of Songs. So it's just like the Baseball Hall of Fame in that respect. So that's how our voting works. Our most recent election, our 20th election, the results again on January 28th, that's a really interesting one. We're not going to reveal what's going on in that election, but have you gotten a chance, Chris, to see what is happening in the votes? I have. It's pretty interesting. Uh, you know, lots of room for things to move around if you go vote, but uh, it's very interesting. This might be the most interesting election that we've had so far, at least from the early returns. So we'll see what happens if a song gets into the hall. I'm hoping at least one. We don't want a repeat of what happened last time out. Again, looking at you listeners, looking at you through your phone. No, I'm not. That's really creepy. Listening. <laughs> no, that that's also creepy. Just I'm I'm just keeping a watch on the election results. Okay, how about that? So that's how we do everything here on Hall of Songs. This is the Veterans Committee. And like I said, this is an episode where we go back and nominate songs that we didn't nominate the first time. And we're concentrating on a four-year period, the last four years that we talked about, 1971 to 1974. And then we have something else that we do in this episode too, Chris, right? Yeah, so we decided, I guess, in season two, right, that we were going to have a couple songs that we talked about that we love, uh, maybe things are emblematic of the era, but things that are maybe outside of what we're looking for for the Pure Hall of Songs nominees. So we've talked about some live tracks. We've talked about some just sort of personal favorites. And, you know, these are not going to be on the ballot, but they're still interesting songs to talk about. Uh, it lets us be a little bit more creative to put a couple things together here and there. I mean, I know, I know one time I talked about three Wilson Pickett songs just to sort of give him a shout out. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of that fun stuff going on and it gives us a chance to uh, talk about music that we really like, but outside, I guess, the constraints of looking for those uh, nominees that have what we're looking for in a Hall of Songs nominee. Allows us to let loose a little bit. Exactly. There you my, go. It's let just my crazy hair, in here. We let my hair down is what we do. Yeah, this, uh, the veterans committees are like, yeah, they are like a mullet, right? Like there's like business up front where we're going to nominate four songs, then party <laughs> in the back when we like just let loose and talk about the crazy song. This is the Marty it's McSorley. Mullet episode. In season three, we can change these to the mullet episodes. <laughs> I love it. I wish I could grow a mullet so that I could sort of stay with the whole theme. I guess I kind of can. I don't really grow much hair on the top anymore. It does grow on the side and back, so... Maybe maybe when we get to season four, I'll have a full mullet. That would be that'll that'll be something I should try to achieve. Okay, so the way we do it, the first half of the episode coming up here, we'll do four songs that we are going to nominate for the Hall of Songs. These are official nominees. We're gonna put them in, and they range between 1971 and 74. And then we'll take a quick break. We'll tell you, you know, all the things that we want to tell you about this podcast, and then we'll come back with four more songs, I believe it's four, that are emblematic of the era and things that we like and that kind of stuff. And they won't be nominees for the Hall of Songs. So that's how this all works here on the Veterans Committee episode. I guess that's it. Anything else to add before we jump into songs? No, let's get into it. All 
All right, leading off our first Veterans Committee nominee. This is, of course, Maggie May by Rod Stewart from opens with an elongated English folk guitar instrumental passage and then it gets into Rod with the backbeat and that first line of wake up Maggie I think I got something to say to you one of the best first lines it gets you right in the middle of the action and dare I say it kind of sums up all of who Rod Stewart is almost right away yeah, I love this song. I mean, it's funny. We we mentioned Rod Stewart in our 1971 episode. Uh, you know, there were like, as we talked about then, uh, 2021, there are all kinds of 50th anniversary celebrations, all kinds of stuff about 71. Rod Stewart was a huge part of that. I mean, he was a huge star at the time. He sold a ton of albums. His songs really did well. And we didn't nominate anything by him then. Then we did talk about Faces a couple years later when we nominated Ooh La La, but somewhat oddly, that's uh, Faces' song where uh, Stewart doesn't actually do the lead vocals. So, you know, it seems like he's such a piece of rock history. I kind of think that, like, to your point about this sort of sums up all about him, like, this is him at his best. And, you know, later in his career, he's got a little bit of schlock. He has this sort of, you know, silliness that comes about. And Watch yourself. I think that might overshadow some of this like the greatness that that he did have early in his career watch yourself some guys have all the luck that's a jam (laughs) i mean i didn't say anything specific you know okay (laughs) i do i do know for sure that i had vagabond heart on cd so hey it's not like i can call anybody out on this good album good album (laughs) so rod stewart's story he grew up in london He was busking when he was about 17. His original dream actually was to be a footballer or soccer player for those of us in America. (laughs) He has a trial at Brentford FC now in the Premier League and the rival of the mighty Fulham. Uh, That's fantastic. (laughs) He was in a bunch of groups before Faces, including the Jeff Beck group. And then while in Faces, he launched his solo career in 1969. But his third album, Every Picture Tells a Story, was his first big solo hit. That, of course, is the one that comes out in 71 here. It tops the charts in the UK, US, and Canada, as did this song, Maggie May. This is absolutely one of the most ubiquitous classic rock radio songs to the point where if I hear even a millisecond of Maggie May, I know exactly what song it is. What makes a song like this so ubiquitous, so necessary to put in our nominee list? I, I So I think this is the beginning of, I mean, I think this fits in a lot with even things like we've talked about with like Big Star and some of the other jangle pop type bands where this is radio pop, but it's moving a little bit beyond that. And it's trying to be a little bit deeper. Uh, I mean, the song is about his relationship with an older woman. Apparently it was somewhat inspired by the first woman he ever had sex with, which was at like a festival when he was 15 years old. But he wrote it, you know, nine or 10 years later and was sort of inspired by that. But it sort of tells this like true-ish, I mean, I guess you can get the real feeling of it, story of a, a relationship. Uh, it's got like this great, great back and forth to me between him being sort of like in love with her, being brokenhearted, knowing that she's not like the right person for him, 
and like great lyrics, but I think that it's one of those, you know, we've talked about these, some songs that match the lyrics, some songs where it's like, you know, the, the tune is deceptively happy. This is to me one where it matches perfectly. Like it has from the beginning, from that opening guitar, it feels a little bit nostalgic. And that's kind of what the song is. It's a song that's about nostalgia. That guitar, as you mentioned, is Martin Quittenden. He co-wrote the song with Rod, and he plays the guitar part in the beginning, that English folk sort of instrumental, and then the solo in the middle of the song, which is a little bit more electric and has a little bit more rhythm to it. I love the guitar in this track, and I love the little flourishes, the bells in there. There's something of an antique sound to Maggie May that I enjoy. It doesn't sound like a lot of the classic rock that you'll get from the early 70s on the radio. It does feel very unique. And maybe that is that English folk influence. Rod, I know, has always been interested in taking sort of older sounding parts and bringing them into his music. So I like that he does that here. Led Zeppelin does that as well at this time. So they're really the carriers of that torch and Rod, especially with this song. Yeah. And I think Ronnie Wood played some of the guitar on this as well. I know it's both him and uh, Quentin did both. Uh, they like they played a little bit of it. I mean, obviously they were playing together. It's an interesting career, right? I mean, I don't, I, I can't think of too many examples of this, like in modern day where it was like simultaneously doing work with bands like Faces and then also the solo career. I mean, they had albums coming out, you know, in the same year. I think one thing, like the other thing to me that stands out about this is his voice, which is so raspy. And there's something, again, that I think it, it, it's good and bad. I do think it adds to this like, nostalgic quality, but there's also a, something a little bit odd about him having that sort of raspy voice that makes him sound older. And while singing from basically the viewpoint of like a 15 or 60 year old, year old kid, that that doesn't quite match all the time. And I think from the nostalgia angle that it works, but uh, it's a, it's a, one thing about him is that I think it's always, it's, it always had, he has that voice that always makes him sound like he's a little bit older and it's a little bit tougher to say, aha, this is a song about a kid. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Life is old. All right, we're breaking from tradition. I get to intro two in a row. This is, of course, Take Me Home, Country Roads by John Denver, also from 1971. We're breaking from tradition because you are the West Virginia boy, right? <laughs> I have probably heard this song more than any other song on our nominee list, maybe any other song ever. <laughs> this song is essentially the soundtrack of like me. So almost heaven, West Virginia. I love the song. Uh, I, I cannot even pretend to set aside my biases. 
John Denver was born Henry John Duschendorf Jr. in Roswell, New Mexico on New Year's Eve 1943. He started playing music as a teenager, dropped out of school. His big break came when Peter, Paul, and Mary, they have a Hall of Songs nominated song back in the day, recorded an early song of his called Leaving on a Jet Plane. Around that time, he changed his name to John Denver, inspired by his love of adopted home of Colorado, and he got a deal with Mercury Records. That record deal launched his career as a golden boy of folk. He would have a huge string of successful albums and top 10 hits. Ultimately, his reach expanded beyond music. Before dying in a plane crash in 1993, he was widely known as a political activist, playing his songs in support of environmental causes, homelessness, and the African AIDS crisis. He also was an actor, frequently appearing with the Muppets and recording a Christmas album with them and starring alongside George Burns and, oh God, Take Me Home Country Roads would hit number two on the Hot 100 and make Denver's 1971 album Poems, Prayers, and Promises his breakthrough hit. I feel like John Denver is the voice of this section between 1971 and 74. You couldn't escape him on the charts if you tried. And there's something about that that, maybe discomforts me a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you talked about that in the last episode, and I think that a lot of that is fair um, in that I do think that he sort of, he sort of has this, a sound that's really easy to listen to and non-offensive, and maybe that's what supported a couple of those later songs. Uh, I do think this is a great song, and I think that there's a reason why this was his breakthrough, and I think it's better than some of that stuff that he did later that's a little bit more saccharine. Uh, the writing of it is pretty cool. Uh, it was actually, there was a, a husband and wife couple, Bill Danoff and Taffy Nevert, who did some songwriting and apparently were driving through Maryland and were just sort of inspired by sort of the beauty of things and then had this idea of writing a song about this sort of like the beautiful countryside. The line that popped into his head, which is like my favorite part of the song, was about the, the radio reminds me I'm at home far away. And Bill Danoff immediately thought of a radio program from Wheeling, West Virginia that he used to listen to that was aired nationally and was like, this has got to be a song about West Virginia. So they wrote some of it. They wrote pieces of it. They, I guess, offered it maybe to John Denver first, and he said no. So then they were working on a deal to sell it to John Denver. And then it got back to John Denver. He was actually in the hospital after, uh, I think, in a motorcycle accident. And he like heard it again, and he was like, I have to have this. So he met with them, and it was like New Year's Eve. It was December 30th and 31st. They basically crammed themselves into a hotel room, wrote the song by going through like atlases and encyclopedias and learning about West Virginia and adding things that they were finding from those and like woke up in the morning and Denver said, this is the best thing I've ever written. It's going on my next album. He recorded it in uh, January. They came with him, played some of the parts of the song, and it was there on his next album. And like I said, went to number two and was his huge hit. It's a good song. It's a really good song. I mean, it's a Hall of Songs nominee and and there's a reason. I, I think it's... Very plain spoken to the point where it's really charming. I'm not the biggest fan of John Denver and this music and this stuff. I don't think it's really much of a secret that I'm not a big fan of the folky in the country and that kind of stuff. I mean, there's a lot of it that I do like, but generally this is really not my wheelhouse right here. And I don't really want to dive into it too much, but I think it's mainly because I was never a country boy. I was never... Like for a story really quick, I went to an Ori- I went to a bunch of Orioles games at Camden Yards in Baltimore and they do in the seventh inning stretch after take me out to the ball game. Thank God I'm a country boy. And every time I'm there and I hear it and everybody's singing along, I'm like, this is Baltimore. What is happening here? 
What is the appeal of this John Denver that has lasted for so many decades to make people in Baltimore, Maryland, a city on the East Coast by the water, want to sing along with the song? I don't know if I can understand it completely. I can understand it by research and historical context, but I will never personally understand it for sure. I just don't have that connection, but I understand why it's a great song. It's well-written, as you said. It's performed very nicely. It's a very gentle song, and it does give you the sense of pride from where you're from if you are from the country. I guess you probably feel that way a little bit, just being a West Virginia person who has listened to the song a bunch. I hear her voice in the morning hours. She calls me. The radio reminds me of my home far away. I'm driving down the road, I get up. Yeah, I mean, a, a few things that I'll say it again. My biases are out there. Uh, I will, on the, I'm trying to be a little bit objective on the song. It is sort of a. Uh, like it's a very understated song, which I like. And one of the cool things about it to me is, like you said, West Virginians have adopted the song so much that it is belted out. It is like anthemic, you know, at West Virginia football games. I mean, they brought in John Denver to open up Mountaineer Field. Uh, my friends and family belted this song out at my wedding. And it's one of these things that reminds me a little bit of, I guess, uh, You'll Never Walk Alone and how hmm. Liverpool sort of adopted that, how it's these sort of like... It's not that like there's that much melody to it, but it's so easy to sort of belt out and be, uh, you know, sort of emotional. Uh, there is like this weird sort of like prevalence of this song throughout the world. Uh, I've gone to so many places where people where I tell them I'm from West Virginia and they immediately start singing the song. I, mean, <laughs> I, I sang this song with a bunch of German guys and downstairs at a bar in Austria. Uh, I sang this song in karaoke in Sydney, Australia. Uh, I heard this at a pub in Dublin. Uh, I got up on stage and sang this with the band in Detroit. I mean, this is kind of like this worldwide thing. And everybody, for some reason, knows the song. I love the bridge to this. I think the bridge mm -hmm. is where their songwriting really does go a little bit beyond some of that folkiness. And there's, like I said, the, the line about the radio reminds me of my home far away. And then, you know, the part about I, I get the feeling that I should have been home yesterday. And there really is like the music matches the melody there perfectly, where it is somebody who is thinking about their home and wants to get back home and you can apply it. That's the one where I think it, it, like to your point about like, you know, where does it fit in? Like anybody can identify to that. It doesn't have to be somebody who's necessarily on the road, but anybody who's been in a car, who's been driving can kind of identify with that. But it's like, if you're on a business trip and you want to get home and see your family, that's what it does. So the fact that he gets to that, which is applicable to everybody. And then the fact that the song is obviously about my home state, which doesn't always have the most, uh, you know, to be said for it, is why, you know, I think, you know, West Virginians, why we get so emotional about it and why it does fit. Next up on our Hall of Songs nominees from our Veterans Committee, we have one of the more influential artists of the era. It's Susie Quattro with Can the Can. You know who would cover this really well? Wet, Wet leg. leg. <laughs> we didn't. We didn't. We didn't know we were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Susie Quattro was born June 3rd, 1950 in Detroit. She got into rock and roll after seeing Elvis on TV, learned bongos, and taught herself how to play bass. At 14, she joined her sister's band, The Pleasure Seekers, though the group is more about image than sound. She was soon discovered by record executive Mickey Most, who was seeking a woman who could take over the hole left by the late Janis Joplin. So Quattro was given a considerable development through Electra Records. Her first single, Rolling Stone, wasn't much of a hit. She then started working with the songwriting and production team of Nikki Chin and Mike Chapman, who helped her hone her image as a glam-adjacent, leather-clad tough. They also wrote her second single, which is this. This went to number one in several countries, including a number one stay in the UK singles chart. It peaked at number 56 on the Billboard Hot 100, but later in 1976, after more chart success. This actually came out in 1973. She would go on to play Leather Tuscadero on Happy Days and continues to play and work in music today. But really, Quattro is extremely influential on any number of female musicians, rock musicians who didn't have someone to look up to other than her. There's also a couple other artists and groups from this era, Fanny, most uh, explicitly, who was a great female band from the early 70s. But Quattro was really her own thing and was the only woman really doing glam and at this high of a level at this time. Yeah, I mean, that's it's like I said, I don't I don't necessarily fit this into like one genre, but I think the glam sound is really there. There's a little bit of punk to it. What I really love, I mean, the vocals here are just incredible. And it's this great mix where there's like screaming and, uh, you know, it's sort of these loud vocals, but she's in tune the entire time. There's not that much of that. I mean, there's so like the people that can pull that off, you know, where it sort of mixes that screaming. Uh, one person who came to mind who was another another person who came close to some nominees during this period was Alice Cooper, where I feel mm. like some of his stuff when he's doing his best and where it's it's like you could it sounds like he's yelling. But then when you really pay close attention to it, he's completely like on key. And he's really like carrying the melody with a voice while still doing that yelling and into it, which is so to me hard to do. Yeah, I think of it as she's standing on top of a VW bus with a bullhorn and there's a crowd of people gathered beneath and around the bus and she's yelling to them, but just in a bullhorn. So she's kind of talking loudly and it's a really cool effect. And there's even moments where she's kind of doing a moany sexual thing. It's not really explicitly sexual, but you kind of get that in the bridge. And it just adds a little bit of flavor that you will not get from any other artist at this time because nobody else is sexualizing like this, maybe other than Robert Plant. And it's fantastic. She's she's just really unique. And, you know, she's not doing the Grace Slick or Janis Joplin thing, which was very psychedelic and very hippie and very bluesy. This is a very distinct persona. And it's coming out of the Midwest and Detroit and that sort of grimier sort of thing, that sound, that glam sound. It's just really cool. And it's a shame that, she didn't get more notoriety at the time. She did release a bunch of songs around this time. She had a couple singles that charted okay, but ultimately didn't have the complete 
I don't think support of everybody around her to be able to have a huge career with the rock stuff. She got bigger with the soft rock stuff later on in her career, but this is really, this is really the good stuff here. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great point about like the way that she's like the way that she's different than like a grace, like her Janis Joplin. And I mean, it's to be, like in this sort of world and to be a woman in this space had, you know, so difficult. I mean, both in addition to what you were saying, like Grace Slick and Janis Joplin, both were essentially front women where they were out in front of a band and were sort of, you know, a showpiece in a way. Um, and then we've also talked about obviously like Joni Mitchell and Carol King and art and uh, women who were doing sort of the folk scene. And it was really just them. This is like, this is different. It's in a different space where she's out there. She's, it's it's her it's her making really loud music but in a different kind of sound than someone like you know like carol king i mean it's like she's not making this kind of folk music and it's there's just there wasn't much of that and uh i mean to your point about her sort of not getting as much credit as she deserved i don't think that's a coincidence i think that you know probably was very easy to pigeonhole people and she did not fit the you know what a lot of people were looking for at that time she was making a different kind of music different kind of sound and uh and i'm you know i'm glad she's uh, still around still making some music but you're right it's a shame that this stuff wasn't better recognized at the time because this whole album is great there's so many good songs on here and it's like you know we i, I mean even going back to our main episode it's like you could pick and choose a bunch of different songs from hers that stand out I think a lot of the critics at the time were trying to compare her to a Janis Joplin or something because, again, there weren't really any other women that these male critics were grasping at, and they wouldn't even think of comparing Susie to male counterparts who were doing the same thing, which probably is what they should have been doing because this sounds as good as anything from Slade or anything from, you know, even a lot of the T-Rex stuff. I mean, this is right there with it. The percussion at the beginning is really solid. Her bass playing is fantastic and really throbbing throughout the song. The guitar is great. There's a really cool piano just, just kind of blitzes through this song, almost like a Jerry Lee Lewis line. Just great stuff all around and a, a total rock sound. And, and this should be celebrated just as much as any other song from this era. Our final Hall of Songs nominee for a Veterans Committee from 1971 to 74 is a 1973 hit from the Isley Brothers. Back in the list. This is, of course, the 1973 hit, That Lady. Been a long time since we've heard from the Isleys, right? Yeah, I was going to say this probably is the biggest uh, break in between nominees by the same artist. I know there was a decent chunk, uh, like jump for Elvis, but not this long. So uh, good to have the Isleys back and a real, you know, testament to what an incredible career they had. They are really something, and I think very underrated when you talk about some of the greatest groups of all time. We last heard from them back in 1959. That episode. When, of course, we talked about Shout, which became a Hall of Songs inductee very quickly after that. The 1960s provided the group some ups and downs, including the top 20 hit from 1962, Twist and Shout. 
and a stint in Motown that yielded one big single in This Old Heart of Mine. That's a great song. But that record underlays the issue with the Isleys at Motown. At least this is my theory. These guys weren't meant to fit into the machinery of Hitsville, USA. So after three plus years there, they split. They started their own label. Their first hit on T-Neck Records was It's Your Thing in 1969. Thus began the Isley Brothers' most rewarding run. And this is a group that really thrives when they can let the vocals shine and space out a little bit and just be themselves. So between 69 and 72, they charted four top 40 hits and 16 top 40 R&B hits, weaving in and out of popular sounds with one constant, and that's Ronald's very oily tenor and leaping falsetto. In 73, they would release the album 3 Plus 3, named as such because by now the three original Isley brothers, Ronald O'Kelly and Rudolph, were joined by younger brothers Ernie and Marvin, plus keyboardist and longtime family friend Chris Jasper. This is the lead track on 3 Plus 3, and it's a spacey funk remake of the group's 1964 single, Who's That Lady? Yeah, this is called That Lady. Not Who's That Lady, this is That Lady. Did you know that? Because I actually didn't know that. <laughs> I don't think I did know that uh, until we were sort of like going through songs and I noticed that. It, yeah, I mean, To me, the Isleys, it's like we've talked about bands like last episode we talked about Kraftwerk. Right? And we going back a few episodes talking about like Percy Sledge and when a man loves a woman, like Kraftwerk was this like emblem of what was to come. Percy Sledge was a throwback. The Isleys are like all of that, right? The Isleys are like a bridge. They have this sound that goes back to the fifties. Like shout is of its era. Mm-hmm. This song is of its era mm-hmm. and they do everything in between. I, I mean, to your point about them being underrated as uh, one of the greatest bands of all time. I mean, the way they were able to adapt while still making this really fun music and while not, you know, listening to, you know, not listening to people too much and doing their own thing is really incredible. I, I, like what an incredible career, what an incredible sort of bridge they are between some of the old sounds that we talked about and, you know, what's coming down. We haven't even hit the quiet storm period for the Isleys, which might even be their most enduring, and that's only a couple years still from here. Yeah, the thing about this one is the bones of that lady is an old song from the 60s. Who's that lady? And you also have this great guitar playing from Ernie. He plays the lead guitar and it's a very Jimi Hendrix sound. Now, if you remember when we talked about Jimi Hendrix way back in the 60s, he was actually part of the live band that supported the Isleys when they were touring back in the 60s. So there is that connection to Jimmy already. And Ernie is just taking that up and doing this really awesome righteous spacey guitar with a lot of wah-wah kind of sounds and just really far out stuff. It's fantastic. And it defines what the group's going to sound like over the next couple of years, along with the keyboard playing of Chris Jasper. He's really, you know, part of that bed of what the Isleys are about. So that interplay is fantastic. The percussion guitar interplay is fantastic. And I think that percussion kind of reminds me of Isaac Hayes. You know, the Isleys are taking from what they're hearing in the soul vein of Isaac Hayes from the early 70s and applying that to their sound and creating something very vital and urgent for this moment. 
Yeah, I mean, the other thing about this song to me, it's a throwback, I think, to I, I was trying to uh, uh, think of the, some of the ones that it reminded me of in this way, maybe like uh, 60 Minute Man, and then some of the early Beatles stuff where what comes across in this recording is fun in the studio like in i mean who knows maybe it's all fake maybe they're just like all about ready to murder each other and it sounds you know but it sounds like they're having fun there's like a little bit of you know chitter chatter back and forth and the whole sort of uh recording of it just sounds so loose it's like you 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 kind of feel like like if you're a fly on the wall watching this be recorded like oh they were just having fun doing this and it comes through in the song and makes it sort of a real breezy listen that i love So those are our nominees for the Hall of Songs from our Veterans Committee picks, 71 to 74. Those songs, one more time, for you, the listener, are Maggie May by Rod Stewart, Take Me Home Country Roads by John Denver, Can the Can by Susie Quattro, and That Lady by the Isley Brothers. So these songs will be added onto the ballot that will come out on January 30th with our next main episode from 1975. So these songs will just join all the 75 songs and they'll have the same lifespan as those 75 songs if they stay on the ballot for that long, but they will be the Veterans Committee choices. Okay, we're going to take a quick break before we head on to the next couple songs that we just want to talk about a little bit. But before we do that, Chris... Have you seen our Apple podcast reviews lately? We have uh, quite a few more now. I haven't seen that. Are there some uh, interesting ones? I hope or hope not. Yeah, I love there's a Dr. Vankman who just wrote one not too long ago. I'm wondering who that is. It's definitely not Dr. Peter Vankman, but somebody who mm. wanted to at least take How on that persona. How can you be so sure? Uh, that's very true. So he writes, and this I love this, or they write. Uh, this is very funny to me. I tuned into the first five to six episodes and then completely forgot about it. So that's good. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> but I'm so happy to be getting back into it. The 70s were awesome. Can't wait to hear the discussions going forward from here and then into the 80s and 90s. Thank you for coming back to our podcast. Uh, maybe you had a lot of This American Life or any other podcast out there to catch up on. So thank you for coming back to Hall of Songs. A couple more reviews out there. We had recently a three-star rating on Apple Podcasts, which baffles me, but it's your choice if you want to give us three stars. I will tell you that I'd rather you give us five stars. That'd be fantastic because that helps us a lot more and more people can find us that way. I guess if you thought our podcast was mediocre, then, you know, fine, whatever. But maybe whatever. It's fine. I'm going to forget it. I'm going to forget it now. But please, if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and rate our podcast. Give us five stars and give us a review as well. Just tell us what you think about the podcast and tell the world as well. You can also find us anywhere that you find podcasts and tell people that. Tell your family, your friends, anyone who likes music to go to Spotify or Google or Stitcher or anywhere that you have a podcast app. We are there. Just look up Hall of Songs. Also on Spotify, we have some playlists, including the full nominee list of right now, the songs that will be on the ballot right now, but in the, after the 1974 episode, and then the ones that'll be on the ballot after 75 and these veterans committee choices. So go to Spotify and type hall of songs to find that. We'll also find a playlist of all the hall of songs inductees, all 42 of them. They are all there on Spotify. So again, type hall of songs and have a playlist that you'll get to enjoy for a couple hours. I think it's a, maybe two or three hour pot, uh, two or three hour playlist. 
And by definition, they're good songs. Yeah, I, I mean, by our podcast, yes. By, by pure definition. Because we are the voice of what makes a song good. That is us. Uh, what, what else do you want to just shout out real quick before we head back into the episode? Uh, hit us up on social media. Uh, we've got a lot of tough decisions to make. You know, we're uh, curating our list for 1975 and there's years to come. So find us at Hall of Songs on Twitter. Uh, you can find our Facebook page, Hall of Songs. Uh, you can email us at hallofsongspod at gmail.com. Let us know what you think has to be on those lists because we are always looking you know, we have a bunch of uh, ways we approach it, like, you know, playlists, we send things back and forth, but it's tough. Sometimes things get missed. And especially as we get to these years where more and more music was going to be made. And uh, I mean, there's just a lot of stuff. So let us know what you think has to be out there. We like to hear from people. And uh, uh, Twitter's fun. It's fun when people interact with us on there. And uh, especially when they say nice things, but even when they don't, it's still fun to interact with people. So hit us up there. Let us know what you're missing. Go back, listen to some of our old episodes and, uh, if you haven't, especially some of our bonus episodes. Uh, and, you know, uh, they're, they're all fun stuff. Uh, they're, our best albums episode is, you know, it, that's not expiring. There's no voting there. You can always go back and listen to that uh, if you haven't yet. All right. So we're going to get into more songs. We're going to talk about some of our favorites from 1971 to 74. Chris, why don't you lead us into that realm? All right. This is from 1971. It is the Allman Brothers Band from their live album at Fillmore East with Whipping Post. You guessed right. I love the, I love the banter in the beginning of this song when they're announcing that they're going <laughs> to play one more, and there's a guy just in the audience, clear as day and very audible, whipping post. <laughs> just, yeah. and then he'd say, "Yeah, you guessed right." <laughs> Bio on the Allman Brothers Band, formed in Jacksonville, Florida, 1969. Same place as Leonard Skinner. Original lineup was brothers Dwayne Allman and Greg Allman. Dwayne on guitar, Greg on vocals and keyboards, along with Dickie Betts, guitar, Barry Oakley, bass, Butch Trucks, drums, and Jai Jahani Jamo Johnson on the drums. Their first two studio releases, the Allman Brothers Band in 69 and Idlewild South in 70, did not do much commercially, though they're now widely viewed as excellent. The first release to really get traction was a live album containing this track, 71's At Fillmore East, along with In Memory of Elizabeth Reed. This track is a huge part of why At Fillmore East is considered one of, if not the best live albums of all time. That's Chris's words, not mine. It was recorded during a three-night run in March 1971 and released in July. Whipping Post takes up the entire last side of the album. 
And not long after the release of that Fillmore East, both Dwayne Allman and Barry Oakley would be killed in motorcycle crashes. The band would have a lengthy list of members coming and would play under the original name until 2014. I actually saw the Allman Brothers band right toward the end before Greg hung it up and they were playing the mountain jam festival in Hunter mountain, New York. It was the festival that Warren Haynes of government mule helped put together. And so every year government mule played like five sets or something. And Almond brothers band usually was there to play a set. One of the headline at night, you know, 10 o'clock at night kind of sets. And I got to see them and it was great to hear them, you know, still had so much going I mean, I'm sure Derek Trucks was in there and, you know, they, they had some of the younger guys playing and Greg was still doing his thing, but just really great. I mean, they, they're so American. They pull in a lot of different influences, everything from the blues to psychedelic to just straight ahead rock and Southern rock and the swamp stuff and create the sound that is really definitively what you would think of as like American classic rock, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the, wild thing about this to me is like the it's basically a composition i mean this is written if you'll say it by greg allman and it's a blues track to some extent but uh like i said they 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 played this all three nights of the run in uh, march 1971 and every version is different but they're not like completely different you know like what happened like you talk to greg allman about it and he would say that they had sort of a framework where there was this part of the song, there was this part of the song, there was this part of the song. And within that, they would improvise and it could go on, you know, it just very dramatically. Like a few, ver- the one version is I think like 26 minutes long. And then there's like a 12 minute version where they'd like, didn't quite get as deep into some of the jams or it's, it's, it's like this sort of framework for a song that these guys who are just incredible musicians, a pet, especially the two guitar players uh, like fill in these gaps and, take this sort of you know framework and make it into something that's just absolutely to me incredible i love that whipping post itself has two very unique passages the essentially melodic hook of tied to the whipping post but also that instrumental passage that i think is even more iconic than the title and drawn together so well in this recording by just so much I want to almost call it anxiety playing. Like it's the sound of anxiety happening over the course of 10 minutes or so, 15 minutes or so. And I've heard so many covers of Whipping Post. One of my favorites is uh, Jenya Robbins, a cover from like 1974, I think it was. And she just brings a lot of fire to it and plays up the drama of the song. But what you get out of this is the sense of impending doom. I love that so much about this. And to me, it, it makes this recording, this specific recording, maybe one of my three favorite All My Brothers band songs. How does it rate for you? I mean, this to me is number one. Uh, I think slightly ahead of Memory of Elizabeth Reed. Uh, I love when they did Mountain Jam, but that sometimes that was a little bit more, I don't know, they, they could go on a little bit longer in that one. I mean, actually, it's funny. At the end of this version of Whipping Post, uh, it, on the album version, it doesn't just end. You can actually hear them start to play Mountain Jam, which <laughs> uh, that night, this was, I think this was the second show of March 13th. So the Mountain Jam that was coming was 33 minutes long. So it's like they had just ended and they're about ready to go into another like epic uh, track. 
Um, but I love it. I mean, I think this is to me their like the their best moment that was put down on these albums. But uh, I mean, there's a lot of competition for that. And I like what you like exactly what you said. Like, there's this sort of anxiety, and then it gets really, really quiet for a while before the sort of you know raucous ending. And in fact, in this version. They end up sort of playing around a guitar and they end up playing what Frere Jaca for a little bit. Like <laughs> it just sort of and it seems like the song's just gonna like fade out and end before the bass and before the drums kick back in and uh you know and make it sort of this like menacing rock song again. It's just a, a wild sort of contradiction. In America, you get food to eat. Won't have to run to jungle and scuff up your feet You just sing about Jesus and drink wine all day It's great to be an American Ain't no lion or tiger Ain't no mama snake Just a sweet watermelon in the buckwheat cake. Everybody is happy. So I wanted to talk about Rainy Newman on Hall of Songs. This is from 1972. It is the title track of the album Sail Away, Sail Away. Sail Away. Sail Away. We will cross the mighty in the Charleston Bay Sail away Sail away We will cross the mighty ocean in the Charleston Bay This one I only got to in the last couple years and it was another podcast that introduced me to it. And I'm so glad because I remember seeing Sail Away by Randy Newman forever and not listening to it, just thinking it was like a song about sailing, like Sticks is Sail Away or something like that. Nope, not even close. And man, it's it's such a powerful, powerful song. We alluded to this in the Rod Stewart section about how some of the things that come later in the career may, uh, you know, not even cast a negative shadow, but it's like, I feel like for most people, Randy Newman is kind of seen as like, like a gimmicky songwriter or almost like a humorist. And it overshadows some of the stuff that really made him what he is, which is these, these really, really great, great, you know, well-crafted songs that uh, just have a depth to them. That's, you know, unexpected unless that's what you, you know, what you know about him. Yeah. He was born in 43 in LA, spent time in his childhood in New Orleans Became a songwriter at age 17, wrote for a whole bunch of acts in the 60s, many of them British, Petula Clark, Dusty Springfield, Celia Black. In 68, he started recording his own material. His stuff was so beloved that a number of artists would cover the material. In fact, Harry Nilsson did an entire album of Newman covers in 1970. His own albums weren't very successful, though. His songs were great hits for other artists like Mama Told Me Not to Come by Three Dog Night. That trend continued into 72 when he released this album, Sail Away, and this is the title track, as I said. It is sung by a slave trader arriving in Africa. He's convincing Africans to come aboard his ship and sail to America. So that's Randy Newman. He sounds like he's telling a big, goofy joke. 
But if you listen to the lyrics very closely, he's saying a hell of a lot. And it's usually a scathing comment on ignorance, oppression, and other disgusting human behaviors and tendencies. And he's always taking a humanistic role in that. He said that when he's singing this guy in Sail Away, this traitor, the traitor's convinced that what he's doing isn't wrong. He just believes in what he's doing. And he's saying, come to America with me. You're going to get all these great things like watermelon and buckwheat cake. It is incredibly racist what he's saying, and it's ignorant, but this guy doesn't think anything of that. And Randy's kind of giving you that presentation in this song. And of course it is this anti-racist song and this great historical song, but it is done so pitch perfect that you can't help but be in awe when you listen to it. And for my money, Randy Newman is one of, if not one of the like five or 10 greatest songwriters in American history. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's and it's so weird at some points of the song to be singing along with the lyrics of it and then to sort of like, you know, do a double take. I mean, there's there's other songs like that, but this one is so powerful as far as the imagery that it gives. And to your point about the fact that the narrator of the song doesn't think that he is at all in the wrong. The arrangement is so interesting, too, because this is like the Randy Newman arrangement, right? You have this very serious string arrangement. You have these swollen horns and a nursery rhyme sort of piano. It's essentially what you will hear as a Randy Newman song for the next 30, 40 years, but it's perfectly undercutting the lyrics. It's the right backing for this extremely harrowing and horrible tale. And also if you haven't heard it yet, Etta James does a cover of this just about a year later or so. And it's a fascinating cover because she really gets into the she, – she uses her gospel voice on it and the backing is a little more dramatic with some horns and it almost sounds like a late period Elvis arrangement. But it's a really cool version because she plays up the audacity of the slave trader. She really lays into it and to hear Etta do it is something incredibly cool and very different from what Randy Newman would give to it proof that this song even despite the lyrical content can be done by if it's done by the right person done really really well by other people Given my penchant for long songs, it's only appropriate I get to introduce Yes with Close to the Edge from 1972. I talked about Prague Rock in the 72 episode as the intro and said we might talk about some Prague Rock. I don't know if we're going to nominate any classic period Prague Rock for the Hall of Songs, but this is maybe the closest that we get. This might be it. Yeah, but I have a feeling that 
uh, over the next like four or five main episodes, there's going to be a lot of songs that even if they're not prog songs are taking a lot of influences from this, that's probably, again, even similar to like the Allman Brothers band, like that's where they're, that's the credit to the, that they get, right? It's like they did something, they were inventing something. And uh, like there's songs that are going to come out of this that are going to be on the nominee list, I think. So Yes formed in 1968, mostly out of the ashes of a group called Mabel Greer's Toy Shop. Their early stuff was mostly covers, but they soon expanded their sound and themes, drawing out into longer jams that became the basis for layered and classically inspired suites. They also added more instruments, really going in on synthesizers and electronics by the early 70s. In 71, they released Fragile, which marked the band's instrumental and songwriting growth and included the highlight 8-minute 30-second single Roundabout. The follow-up to that was 72's Close to the Edge, an even more ambitious album that went deeper into classical motifs. This, of course, is the title track, clocking in at 18 minutes and 12 seconds, kind of a breakthrough at the time for rock and roll, and considered by many as one of prog rock's finest achievements. And at this point, yes, is vocalist John Anderson, guitarist Steve Howe, bassist Chris Squire, keyboardist Rick Wakeman, and drummer Bill Bruford, who would leave the band after this album and soon go to King Crimson. The song Close to the Edge, which includes four distinct movements, was written by Anderson and Howell. And as much as I get on you for long songs and jam band stuff, there are long songs that I like and appreciate. And this is absolutely one of them. I think this is a brilliant, brilliant piece of music. Yeah, I really like this. Uh, I I actually like, I, I, you know, if it was just me, I would say I think I like Roundabout a little bit better. And I like uh, I've seen All Good People a little bit better. Uh, just as songs go, but this is a fun song. Uh, I really appreciate what they're doing here. And the, I guess like the technical expertise that it takes to sort of put this together from a lot of different pieces. Uh, it, it really is an amazing, it's, it's like, it's not a rock song, quote unquote. It is more than that. And they're trying to do something more than that. And I think they succeed. They, they put together a bunch of different movements. They put together a bunch of different pieces of music, but they tie them together seamlessly in a way that that it does work. And, uh, you know, I really like this. It's not 100%, you know, up my alley. I, I, I do like, yes, but they're not a band I go back to a lot, but I certainly have an appreciation for this and how great it is and what a great composition it is. So I implore you to listen to all 18 plus minutes of this song, but if you don't right now or haven't or what have you, the first part is started by some nature noises and John Anderson collected a lot of these nature sounds that begin the track and kind of go throughout the track as well in different ways. And then it gets into the major melody and the major part of the song, which has the chorus, of course. And there's a few minutes of just softer, more harmonic stuff. And John Anderson singing is really lovely in this part. And then it leads up to this incredible church organ that Wakeman plays. It's the church organ of the St. Giles without Cripplegate church in London. It's their big pipe organ. He actually played that a couple times in his career and he does it for this one. It's fantastic. I love the build up to it and it really does kind of bring this song into an entirely different level. And then after that, you get a faster, more sort of urgent version of the main motif coming out into the close of the song. And it's about nature and humankind's connection to it and the way that we have interplay with the planet. And so the nature sounds really play into that and the way that the motifs are formed play into that as well. But what I love about this one, most of all, is that yes, can get really 
full of itself, I guess is a way to put it. Some of their stuff as you get into the mid seventies gets really out there to the point where if you're not really into them, you'll kind of lose track and you'll want to get away. The early yes stuff is much more pop focused. They actually have like a cover of Beatles, every little thing in their very first album. And it's much more of rigid song structures. This right here, this album and this song this kind of puts them at the perfect balance where there's still pop structure in place. There's still discernible pieces of songs and records, but you also get this great expansion of sound and instrumentation and classical themes that put you in a different place when you listen to it. And it takes you on a journey and it doesn't do it without being full of itself. And so I think this is the sweet spot for yes, this period right here, kind of between fragile and topographic a couple albums later, this is kind of where they are at their best. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd argue, throwing it back to the Allman Brothers band in a whipping post, that like this is a little bit more taking some influences from classical, where there are the set sort of movements that fit together, but there's a little bit more rule following that has to be done in order to make this song work. Whereas like whipping post is more jazz-like in that some nights it's 12 minutes, some nights it's 25 minutes, and that's because there's a framework, and then within that they can go any place. And I mean, it's not that that's a dramatic oversimplification, but I think that there's a discipline to this song that really does make it work. It's like it is 18 minutes and 12 seconds, but that's because the pieces added together get there. It's not a five-minute song that turns into an 18-minute song. And you know, that's what Whipping Post is. Whipping Post is a five-minute song that turns into a 23-minute song. And in that case, I think it works. I mean, others can disagree. But it, it that those types of things don't always work. And I think that that's, you know, your point about them uh, as they would move on in their career, uh, particularly, you know, a few years after this. Some of it I don't think always does work. I don't think it works as well as this. I don't think it works as well as some of its earlier – is their earlier stuff. But, uh, but yeah, but I mean, again, this song, it really does – it doesn't feel like a long 18 minutes because there's enough different pieces to it that uh, it really does sort of go by pretty quickly and it does sort of patch together really well. Yeah. Relayer, tomato, going for the one. It gets a little out there. So tread with caution. But if you want to start somewhere with a yes, this is a really good place to do that. I would also say the yes album is a great place to start or fragile. This kind of three album period between 70 and 71 is uh excuse me 70 and 72 is really fantastic all the need is a fine today if i ever get out of here if we ever get out of here yes chris we get to talk about the beatles once more well one specific beetle that is paul mccartney and his band wings wait paul mccartney from wings this is band on the run from 1973 It's interesting, we nominated a lot of Beatles songs for the Hall of Songs. They have three inductees. They're the only artists to have three inductees at this point. I Want to Hold Your Hand, Yesterday, Let It Be. 
we nominated Imagine as the first Beatles solo song nominated for the Hall of Songs. That was unceremoniously kicked off the ballot very quickly in uh, one of Chris's most uh, glorious moments of the podcast history. This isn't going to be on our list, but I feel like we should talk about it. I feel like we should talk about Paul McCartney as a solo career. It's I don't know if we're going to get any Paul McCartney songs in the nominee list. I, I can't at this point see going forward one breaking through, maybe, possibly, but this might be he might not get one. So I wanted to talk about Band on the Run. There are three different parts here somehow combining into this great song about escape and it's the climax is this incredible pop song. I love it. And I could talk forever about Paul McCartney and his solo career. So I'm going to stop now. You bring your thoughts into it, Chris. Yeah, this was probably my first exposure to Paul McCartney's solo career. I think my dad had this on vinyl and I have his copy and uh, like it, this, the, the beginning of this album and this track, it's like, it's a fun, fun listen. Uh, I mean, especially when you're not paying too much attention to some of the lyrics or doing anything or going too deep. I mean, it really does sort of feel a little bit, uh, a little bit Beatlesy, I guess. It like it's got sort of it's it's fun. It there's great hooks. I mean, this is a song that has what three or four great hooks embedded into the same song. Uh, I mean, it's Paul McCartney doing what he does best, uh, songwriting, uh, and it's I don't know. We we talked about this in our Beatles episode. My my relationship with all of the solo stuff uh is odd in that i kind of i listen to it and it immediately makes me want to go listen to the beatles and uh <laughs> and it's like and it's hard and it's like and i don't think that's i you know i'm not trying to like take anything away from some of the things they were doing on their solo career and uh like i probably sort of despite my hatred for imagine probably listened to john's solo stuff on a you know, pound for pound basis more than anyone else's. But it's like, I listen to this and I immediately want to go throw on like Abbey road, as opposed to listen to band on the run again. And I don't know why that is. It's just sort of an emotional reaction to it. Uh, but it is, it's Paul doing what Paul does and it's great. And it, it is a fun, fun song. Well, the context of this one is also really important because this is a moment where Paul really had to make a good album and put out some singles that people liked, especially the critics. He was getting dragged by everybody at this point. After the Beatles broke up, he retreated to his farm in Scotland. He was depressed. He drank heavily, wrote a ton of music, though. And what resulted were multiple albums, the Fantastic Ram from 1971, an uneven album called Red Rose Speedway from early 73. And in between that, the first album from his new band Wings called Wildlife released in late 71. Wings is Linda McCartney on vocals and keyboards, drummer Denny Sywell, and former Moody Blues singer and guitarist Denny Lane. But Wildlife is rough and tumble and not for everybody. Most people will tell you it's terrible. I think there's some charm in it. As I mentioned, Red Rose Speedway is uneven. So Paul is coming into this trashed by critics, trashed by his old bandmates, not really doing too well. And so he really does need to make a big album to prove to everybody that it's not just John and George who were worth it after the Beatles. So he goes to Nigeria in 1973 to record this album. And along the way, Cywell and another guitarist in the band at the moment, Henry McCullough, they both quit. So it's Paul, Linda and Denny Lane. They go to Nigeria they finished the recording of most of the songs. And as they're kind of wrapping it all up, 
Paul and Linda are going out for a walk and they get robbed. And part of the stuff that was taken from them were the recordings of these songs. So there is an original version of Band on the Run that was recorded in Nigeria that could still be out there and somewhere, maybe in Nigeria, maybe somewhere else, but it's lost to the public. Paul had to, from memory, re-record all the songs. And the result is this incredible album that is maybe the best Beatles solo album, arguably at least. And this song, which, as I mentioned, three different pieces put into one, is an achievement. There's this great first part that's very kind of folky. The second part is a little bit more of a funky rock thing. And then the bridge into the third part is this great arranged piece of orchestration by Tony Visconti, who worked with David Bowie a lot and T-Rex. And he puts together this wonderful sort of brass and string buildup that changes the tempo to the next part which is this incredible three minute long pop song that by itself could have been a big hit and is a wonderful song. And it may be the best three minutes of any Beatles solo artist's entire career. That's, you know, that's one argument you can have, but nevertheless, it's a great, great recording. And the whole album's great. I, Chris, I would say, listen to all band on the run. It's a great album. Oh yeah. No, I, there's no doubt band on the run. such a great album. Uh, and it really, like I said, it, it is Paul doing what he does so well. And, I mean, I'm I'm with you on some of the earlier stuff that there's more hidden gems there than what people tend to give it credit for. Uh, I do think at some points that, you know, Paul misses the edge that John would offer to a couple of his songs. Uh, this is one where I'm not sure it needs that. It does sort of have, it works, I think, when you piece everything together. Tony Visconti is great. And I do think that, I don't know who gets the credit for what here as far as everything goes, because it really is pieced together and sort of glued together perfectly all the different pieces of the song in a way that you know knowing paul i'm sure he had his hands in it you know from minute one but tony visconti manages to execute it perfectly and really does sort of uh, you know make it i mean again we talked about it like with the yes where it's like this suite but that's a suite that lasts you know 18 and some minutes this is a suite that lasts what five and a half six minutes and it kind of does the same thing it has all these different pieces it just does it in a little bit more of sort of a micro basis I feel like we have to do a separate podcast on Beatles solo songs and albums. And, you know, maybe that's something I'll drag you into. We'll see. As long as I don't have to talk about Imagine anymore. You got to hit everything, man. <laughs> you got to hit everything. For every Imagine, there is a water spout. And that is something you've never heard of before. And when you hear it for the first time, you'll say, oh, okay. Well, okay. I'm in. I'm in. Oh, I thought you were going to say temporary secretary. But, uh, that's a good one, too. Yeah. That's a good one, too. No, it's funny. I actually, I tend to lean towards John slightly on the solo stuff, uh, more so than Paul, except for Imagine. Except for Imagine. I just can't, like, it's it's intolerable. Yeah, John John definitely has more rock and roll moments over his career. Paul likes to be more of a pop star, a rock pop star. But I think Paul's variety is so much more, and he's not afraid to try new things, put it that way. And I really appreciate that. Sometimes it doesn't hit, but most times it does hit on some level. And I appreciate that a lot. Love 
All right. I guess we should wrap it up. We finished our conversation on songs from 71 to 74 that we wanted to talk about, so we did that. Hopefully you got through this whole thing with us and enjoyed your time with us. Chris, uh, we should say some thank yous before we head out of here, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you to Stock Music Media for our theme song. Uh, every, I still get a lot of compliments on that every episode. It's a lot of fun. Uh, also, thanks to Aaron Delashma. You can find his stuff at uh, Piper Down Productions. Uh, he does our logo work. You can actually go order some Hall of Songs merchandise if you're so inclined. So, uh, you know, go do so. That's Valentine's Day is just around the corner. So, like we said on the main episode, nobody has ever been upset about receiving a Hall of Songs miniskirt. I don't think anybody has. I've I've actually listened to at least 30 to 40 people <laughs> who have said that they absolutely love the miniskirt. Great material. It reads really well, and it is a showstopper when you see it on the streets. Our next episode is the recap episode for our 20th election. That will come out on January 28th. Please check out our feeds uh, wherever you get Hall of Songs, and when that drops, go listen to that. You'll find out if any songs got into the Hall of Songs from our most recent election. And you could even vote if you still hear this the day that this comes out, which will be January 28th. Third, you can go to hallofsongs.com and vote uh, for up to 10 songs that you think should be in the hall. So do that now if you can. After our recap show, we'll then have our next main episode, 1975. That'll be coming out on January 30th. We are going through our list right now to make sure we have a nominee list. And boy, oh boy, we there's some big songs in 1975, and we will get into those as we do the episode. But just get ready for a plethora of classic key radio pop rock staples is that a way of putting it that's a good way of putting it oh yeah i mean this is the heart of classic rock it's going to be fun so that's our next episodes coming up here and i think that's it for this one thank you for listening this has been hall of songs i'm tim i'm chris prove me wrong Skin the goat.